Let us pray. O most gracious Father, ever draw near once more as we have heard your word. Indwell our hearts and our minds by your spirit that we would receive your word, that we would be encouraged by your word, that we would be drawn nearer to yourself because you have drawn near to us and guide us evermore in your footsteps and your paths, that we might know that you will hasten to us when we cry out to you. And we ask all of this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Here we are. We're three weeks out from the end of the church year. The church year, as most of us know, ends and begins at a different time than our regular secular calendar. Our church year always starts four weeks prior to Christmas in order that we might prepare our hearts for the coming of the Lord. And here we are three weeks out from the last Sunday of the church year where we are once more preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord. This week, next week, and the week after that, all of our readings are going to be rotating around this idea of the second coming of Christ. As we move to that last Sunday of the church year called Christ the King Sunday, and it's important that we continually keep before our eyes in many ways this idea, this reality, this truth that Jesus is coming again. That we not become distracted. That we not become forgetful of what Jesus is going to do. We continually keep before our eyes his, inc his incarnation, his coming, and our celebration of that at Christmas. Even now, people are already getting gunned up and revved up to celebrate Christmas. And that's fine. That's good. I'm not going to get revved up quite yet to celebrate Christmas, but I know it's coming. My heart is preparing. My heart is looking toward that already. We have hearts and minds that look toward Easter, that look toward Christ's death and his resurrection. After all, that is the core of our faith, that Christ came, that he died, and that he was raised. But there's another part of that that we recall every single week through our creeds, through our Eucharistic prayers, through many of our other prayers, is that Christ is coming again. And here in Thessalonica, they knew that Christ was coming again. As we come into this fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, they knew he was coming. But Paul's short time there didn't allow him to fill in the theology and what it meant for Jesus to return. He didn't get to fill in that, yes, we're expectant. We want him to come now. We're hopeful that he will return soon, but he may not return immediately. And so Paul has to address this question because they wrote to him and they said, some of us have died. Does that mean they miss the resurrection? Do they miss out on the reality of Christ returning, of that new flesh, of that new creation that you spoke of? Are they stuck? They were uninformed, Paul says. And so Paul opens this section with saying, but we do not want you to be uninformed. He wants to inform them. He wants to teach them. He wants them to understand that there is hope. That our hope rests in Christ. That it rests not only in his death and resurrection, his ascension and return also. That all of that goes together. And that all of that means that all who are believers in Christ will receive what Christ has received. 
He has received new life. He has received glorification, entering into the full presence of the Father as a human being on our behalf. And we believers too will receive that. We will receive new bodies, a glor glorified bodies. We will receive the fullness of the life that has been implanted in us by the Spirit right now. And we will be in the presence of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit in a way that we will never be able to turn away again. And the first reality that we see being placed before the people of Thessalonica from Paul is that there is a hopeful rest. You see, Paul says, I don't want you to be uninformed in verse 13 about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. You see, they were beginning to grieve because fellow believers in their church had died and they weren't sure what was happening. They weren't sure what had happened to them, where they were. Because they had such a deep expectation of Christ's return that they believed that none of them were going to die before he returned to earth, before he brought in that final judgment and the final completion of salvation. And so they were stuck in that place of grieving, not quite understanding what was happening, but Paul wants them to know that those who have fallen asleep, I don't want you to grieve as those who do not have hope, as others do who have no hope, that we have hope because we enter into a hopeful rest at death. In verse 14, Paul goes on to say, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Did you catch the subtle distinction of what Paul just said right there. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Those who die in the Lord are not dead. They are merely asleep. They are resting. They are in a hopeful rest. Their physical bodies are laying, laid down in the ground. And in that sense, they are simply asleep because they have died in the Lord. Paul draws a subtle distinction between the experience of the believer who merely sleeps and needs to be awakened with just a nudge and the experience of Christ himself. On the outside, it looks the same. Jesus died. These believers have died. It looks the same to us. But yet, internally, there's a world of difference between what happened to Jesus in his death and what happens to believers in our deaths. There's a cosmos of difference. There's a qualitative difference that we have to recognize. The difference is so great that Paul describes the death of a believer as merely sleeping. He is sleeping, awaiting for that moment when his body will physically be awakened. But for Christ, he died and was raised again. He didn't fall asleep. He didn't get entombed as other believers were. He didn't doze off. No, Paul says we know that he died because his death is so great. It's on such a different level, qualitatively, quantitatively, from everything else. It's the death at the center of all of creation. It's a greater death than even the death of Adam and Eve who are in perfect communion with God. That their spiritual deaths are nothing in comparison to Jesus' physical death. And yet, Christ was raised from the dead. He was 
made alive once more, he rose from that very death. Which means he defeated that kind of death. And he defeated the cause of that death by dying totally, completely. He overcame death and sin by dying on account of our sins. Yes, so that we, though physically dying, would no longer die in that way. We would merely fall asleep in the Lord. And when we are awakened, we will enter into the fullness of not an ordinary life, but a new kind of life. Amen. One that we as believers have just now begun feeling and sensing and beginning to be worked out in us slowly evermore from the moment of our baptisms to the moment of our death. We are just getting but a tiny foretaste of that guaranteed new kind of life, that eternal life that is planted within through baptism and faith and that grows out of us and springs forth from the ground when our bodies spring forth from the ground at the resurrection. We are just beginning to get a taste of it. But Paul wants us to know that Jesus died such a way that we only fall asleep. I can't hammer that down enough. I can't emphasize that enough that we merely fall asleep. People who die in the faith are merely asleep. We are not forever separated from them. We are not forever put in a place to where we will never touch with them again. We will never hug them again. We will never be face to face in communion and connection with them. Because Christ has been raised from the dead. We need not be hopeless to never see our fellow believers. Because Christ's death has the consequence of all believers now merely falling asleep. His resurrection has the consequence of all believers rising from the dead. That even though our bodies die, in comparison to Christ's death, we are but asleep. You might say that Christ's death is the real death. His death is so real that all other death is now but mere sleeping. But of course, Paul is not denying the idea of pain and grievance at losing a loved one. But he's helping us have perspective here that we don't have to grieve as those who have no hope. We have a hope of a resurrection. That though there is separation and it's real and painful, it's never permanent for us as believers. It can't be permanent because Christ has been raised from the dead. It must never be permanent because Christ ascended into heaven and is at the right hand of the Father and will return to this earth to bring up all of those who are His, to bring them back into this world. Yes, we have sufferings in this world. We have grief and sorrow that we bear, pain and loss, hardship and brokenness. But they are not the last word according to Paul because God will bring with Him those who have fallen asleep. Though Christ... Through Christ's death and resurrection, those, they themselves, that brokenness, that sorrow, that pain, that grief, will be done away with. There is hope to be had. There is hope to be received. There is hope to be clung to. That there is an end to this dark path that we walk on. As David said, I walk in the valley of the shadow of death. We walk in a valley of deep darkness. But there is a light all around us that we are more and more coming to see and to feel and that we will be renewed by. Renewed in such a way that we can now look forward to that hopeful resurrection. I've already mentioned a lot about resurrection, but Paul brings it home even more in verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, 
that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Paul speaks with conviction and hope that he will be among those who will remain, that he'll be there to witness with his still living physical eyes the resurrection that is coming, seeing the dead rise. That permeates this passage. But it doesn't mean that he was absolutely sure that he would be there. He has a conviction and a hope to see that day. But he never makes a definitive statement of saying, I will be there when Jesus returns. I will still be standing on this earth. He never says it like that. But he always speaks in that first person plural and wants to include himself in witnessing that resurrection. And that he received a word. He and Paul... He, Paul, and Timothy, and Silas, or Silvanus, have heard from the Lord and have been taught by the Lord himself that he will descend with a cry of command, that the Lord will return, and that those who have died in the Lord will be raised up first. The dead in Christ will rise because Jesus has returned. And then we who remain, any who remain, he'll go on and say we'll be caught up with them to meet him in this hopeful resurrection. Because he says the dead will rise in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise. That doesn't mean that disembodied spirits come from heaven down here to earth. No, he says the dead will rise. This is a radical concept in this Greek world who believe that at death your body was separated from the spirit and your body just was nothing. It didn't matter anymore. You went down into Hades, into the realm of the dead, and you just kind of dwelt there in a shadowy place for a lot of Greeks. There wasn't much to look forward to. You had continued existence, but there was no joy, there was no life, there was nothing much to do. But here, Paul says, the dead will rise in Christ. The dead in Christ will rise. All the dead who are in Christ will rise up first. Those souls will be taken and reunited physically with their human bodies in a renewed physical body. That's part of the new creation that will no longer die because Christ no longer dies. Paul's bringing everything together that the dead, if Christ has been raised from the dead, then so too are those in Christ who will rise from the dead because we are united, we are connected, we are all one body with Christ now. His spirit indwells all believers. So much so, I think it's the Westminster Catechism who makes a comment that even our physical bodies in death are still united to Christ, awaiting the resurrection. And I thought that's just a beautiful thing to say, that even our physical bodies resting in the grave are still united to Christ, though the spirit has departed though our souls have departed, awaiting that reunion of soul and body and that hopeful resurrection that is to come. And so Jesus' rising up means there will be a rising up of the dead. And those who already fell asleep will come back with the Lord having also been raised from the dead, that Jesus was a, had a real rising up 
that therefore all who fall asleep will have a real rising up. Because what Jesus has, we receive. Because what he has been given, he was given on our behalf that he might pour out upon us. He was given resurrection life in his resurrection that he might then pour it into us. He was given a glorified body that he might then give us glorified bodies, that our physical bodies would rise up from the dead just as his physical body has risen up from the dead. There is a reality to the resurrection of the dead that we again confess every week. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We say that every week in our creeds. And if you do morning prayer or evening prayer or have a habit of saying the Apostles' Creed every day, you say, I believe in the resurrection from the dead every day too. Because that's part of that creed, because it's a foundational truth of our faith that the resurrection is going to happen, that the dead will rise in Christ. Amen. And we cross ourselves. Some of us cross ourselves when we make that statement. Because all of the salvation this resurrection that we are looking forward to receiving flows first from our baptisms. Because in baptism, we were first signed with that cross. And we receive the reality of that promise through baptism by faith. The reality of resurrection comes to us at the moment of baptism. And as we grow and live in that baptism, we are drawn into faith and trust and repentance. But it's always linked back to that moment when we were baptized and the cross was made over us. Resurrection from the dead is the fulfillment of all of Christ's promises of salvation. It is the fulfillment of forgiveness. It is the fulfillment of renewal. It is the fulfillment of everything that God has promised in saying, I will be your God and you will be my people. That is our hope. And so I make it a habit when I say the creed and say, we believe in the resurrection of the dead to cross myself knowing that through my baptism, I am united to Christ. And if Christ has been raised from the dead, then I too will be raised from the dead. We cross ourselves at that statement of believing in the resurrection because baptism is when that promise comes to us and is first received by us and for us on our behalf. And we look back to God's promises knowing that they are true and right and salutary. And so in that sense, the resurrection from the dead is not caused by my faith. It doesn't cause me to have it because it's Jesus who causes me to have it. It is he who has promised it to me, to you, to, <coughs> to us all in the moment of our baptisms. It was said of us in baptism that we are united in Christ's death and resurrection. And to believe and trust that word is to receive all that is ours in Christ. Faith doesn't cause it to become real. Faith receives it. It receives the work thereof promised and given that we might live in the reality of that which is for us. And all of that is united together in these words that the dead in Christ will rise first. That we look toward that hopeful, hopeful resurrection. But then Paul finally speaks of a hopeful reunion that now will occur. In verse 17, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with those in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Those that have not died will yet see the Lord. The Thessalonians got that part of it. They understood from Paul's earlier preaching that yes, 
Those who are alive at Christ's return will meet him and see him and know him in a new way. But they didn't understand that the dead, those who fell asleep in the Lord, would return with the Lord in a glorified state, in bodies fit for new creation. They didn't get that part. They didn't know that there would be a hopeful reunion with those who had, who had gone before them to see the Lord. And so Paul brings up once more that those who have not yet died will yet see the Lord. They know that, but he wants to bring it back up because he wants them to understand more and more about it. St. Paul has now corrected that understanding by teaching them about the dead in Christ. Those who are asleep will rise again to new life. But he connects it to the reality of that resurrection. He connects those who remain to the reality of the resurrection in a deeper way for them to understand. He emphasizes the reality of that resurrection, that those who have fallen asleep will be raised so that the Thessalonians would understand that they don't lose out on new life. But Paul also, I think, underneath all of this, doesn't want them to get into the fear of, oh, only the dead in Christ will be raised. After all, they had it the other way around, that only the alive in Christ would receive new life. And Paul has put such deep emphasis on the dead, on those who have fallen asleep being raised back into new life, that they might flip-flop and think, oh, only the dead get this new life when Christ returns. If we remain alive when he comes, we lose out on something. So Paul wants to re-emphasize and bring it back to them that those who are left will be caught up in the same glorious moment to meet in the clouds with those who have gone before them, to meet with the Lord. He wants to cut off that idea that they might think that they have to die to receive all of these great gifts, that they might have to physically die. And so all those who remain will also be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And if they're meeting the Lord in the air, then they also in a, are receiving some type of new life. They, Though they are not rising from physical death, they are rising to new life, into a new resurrection life, into a renewal of their bodies, where all things are stripped away and purged from what they once were. And meeting the Lord in the air with all of our fellow believers who went before us, we all experience the same reality that Christ himself has now. The fullness of glorification and resurrection at a reunion that is unimaginable. Think about that. Seeing all who have died in Christ once more, coming with him in the clouds down to this earth, and us being caught up with those same dead in Christ and being given resurrection bodies as they have just then been given and having that unimaginable reunion with loved ones, with friends, with family, seeing all the saints of the past that we've heard so much about, all of it coming together and rejoicing together as we return to a renewed earth in order that we might be with the Lord. There is the foundation that Paul gives to the Thessalonians that he then says, then says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. In our moments of grief, in our moments of suffering, in our moments of hardship, we remember that the Lord is coming again. And that we who are in Christ, 
we'll have new life. We will be raised from the dead. And if we happen to still be alive at that return, we still will be renewed and refreshed and recreated for this new creation that is coming. Amen. And that is the joy that we look forward to. That is the encouragement that we have. That we fall back on in those dark moments of grief and sorrow. It doesn't take away the grief and the sorrow, but it takes the edge of hopelessness away. It takes that sword of hopelessness that would cut away at our faith and try to destroy our faith. Remembering the resurrection of the dead renews our faith and puts us on a trajectory of hope toward Christ. So how does this all connect to our other readings with Amos 5 about don't hope for the judgment to come where I'm talking about let the Lord return. Don't hope for the Lord to come because that's going to be a dark and disastrous day. And then the ten virgins, the foolish and the wise. It's all interconnected. They're all about the return of Christ, but I think there's a deeper connection than just that. I was looking up on this and studying up a little bit about it when it talks about the trumpet sounding. The voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. It made me think about the interconnections between the Feast of Trumpets, which led me to think about the Day of Atonement, which led me to think about the Feast of Tabernacles. I don't know if you remember, but I did mention a while back that the Transfiguration is believed that maybe that happened about the same time as the Feast of Tabernacles, hence the fact that Peter was like, let's, let's build some tabernacles for us, for you guys. Let's build some tents for you to stay in while you're here. That they're all interconnected and that the Trumpet sounding is the reality of the day of judgment coming there in the Jewish calendar. That feast of trumpets at the beginning of the seventh month, they sound the trumpet and the people begin coming for the day of atonement where they receive forgiveness of their sins, where all the sins that they have committed as a people are laid on an animal and that animal is sacrificed and put to death on their behalf. And then immediately following that is the feast of tabernacles where they go out into the harvest and they receive the fruit of all of creation and in a sense the fruit of new creation because they have been completely forgiven of all their sins because their sins have been atoned for. And we have that picture here from Paul, I think. The trumpet sounds. Judgment and salvation occur and we enter into new creation immediately. It happens back to back to remind us that judgment is coming, yes, and the way to avoid that judgment is to recognize that you deserve to be judged. You deserve to be separated from God because of your sins. And therefore, it's only through the atonement of Jesus, through his taking your sin onto himself and you then living in that reality and receiving it. Saying the Lord is the truth teller and I am the liar. Jesus has died for even my sins and I can be forgiven and I receive that. What the Lord has said is true. And we enter into not judgment from God, but the salvation of God. And so we don't cry out, Oh Lord, return right now and judge all these people all around us. No. We may cry out for the Lord to return. And we say, Let us avoid your judgment by falling on your mercy. Return, O Lord but return in mercy. Return by grace toward us, your people. 
And that's what we have to keep ever before our eyes, that we desire Christ's return in hope. But we lose that hope when we don't cling to the cross, to the death and the resurrection of Christ and why he died and was raised again in order that we would be forgiven, in order that all of creation would be renewed, in order that we would not be foolish, but that we would become wise. Because we're a mix of both in this life. Sometimes we're wise and sometimes we're foolish and we are battling back against that foolishness in order to bring about wisdom in our lives and the Spirit working in us more and more, drawing us to Jesus, which enables us to become those that Christ uses to draw others to himself. That as we draw near to the cross, others can be drawn near through us by Jesus. And so may we rest in the hope that we have in the resurrection, that reality that Christ himself has experienced that we also will experience in the fullness thereof, all the promises coming to us that started in our baptisms. May we rejoice and find the favor of God by seeking his forgiveness, by receiving his forgiveness, and by living the reality of that forgiveness, seeing lives that are changed because we have been forgiven. And so may we rest in the work of the Spirit in us through Jesus for the Father. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.